Thanks. Okay, everybody, welcome to The Real Addicts. February, Black History Month. We're kicking our entire program off, this whole podcast, in February with Black History Month. Two white men celebrating Black history and leaning into it. I think um, this is some important stuff. And John and I talked at length as to whether or not we would be embraced revered or just despised and canceled instantly based on our choices to, to do this. And that made me think, and you too, right, that this was an important thing to tackle. Yeah. I mean, I think that race in general is an uncomfortable topic for people. I mean, white people especially to talk about. So I think we it's a good thing for us to be talking about it for no other reason than to get the practice. I think it's important, too, because so often you have people that are white, white people in my purview, by and large, fall into two camps that I am not a member of either of. Thankfully, I'm very grateful not to have a membership to either club, which is just the really frustrated, angsty, entitled without even knowing they're entitled group. And then there's the white guilt crew. Yes. That just, you know. Every single rally, and you see people that are part of the groups they're fighting for, kind of looking at them like, maybe maybe we can be our own mouthpieces a little bit. Maybe. Yeah. I had an experience that I'll share right off the top. So during the BLM marches, take BLM and what it's become, what it stands for, what your opinions on it are as an organization out of the picture. Back when it was just a response it was an acronym for a response to police brutality, to black deaths in communities, and it needed to happen, especially during the pandemic. I wanted to be a part of learning what people wanted out of this. Like, what do you want? I had a motorcycle before I totaled it twice in Los Angeles, and I would ride up and we would clear the intersections upcoming for the marches. There was me and a bunch of other people, almost all black, and I would just lean over and say, hey, what do you guys want out of this? What do you want? And they had answers. Like I learned about redlining, which redline districts is a whole thing that needs to be Googled, studied, and understood. If you don't know what that is, I'm not going to break that down here just due to time, but please research that. And the thing that I realized more than ever, and I had no idea about this, was that they wanted control of their money. They wanted economic opportunity. They wanted an infusion and influx and control of financial stability, growth, and everything that, that white communities have, they yeah. wanted financially. And it really made me understand, I start to understand at that point, how much of this racism that exists in the world for all cultures is based on class. These are class issues, and it's keeping people down and making sure they're under other people's thumbs. And it's all based on monetary shit. And it's a sleight of hand I found in a lot of ways where it's like, okay, cool. Look over here at all this hate, the racism, the media is pumping all this stuff for you to get angry about because it's racism. But we're not seeing the root system of that and how it's really just a puppet on the hand of class and big money trying to keep people distracted. Yeah. It's interesting because I think just the idea of generational wealth is not something that white people discuss at all, just because we've 
white people have for the longest time controlled the wealth of civilization. So we, we've owned things, we've had uh, inheritances and things like that, where that is not the case for the black communities. And it's just trying to generate some sort of stability and generational wealth that absolutely can be used to control your own life and destiny. When did you find out you were privileged? I think I'd always had an intellectual sense that I was privileged, but I never really understood what it meant until probably 2020 and just like exploring that and understanding it. Um, Yeah. Somebody had said to me that I thought was brilliant. They said, white supremacy isn't the shark, it's the water. And I thought that was a really good way of framing it where I was like, oh, okay, like that helps me because I always had like seen white supremacy as people who have certain agendas and things like that. But it's it's a cultural systematic issue. I worked for a very progressive liberal company uh, right around the time that the pandemic hit. And one of the situations that had occurred that bothered me was a member of my team was on, I worked for an apartment marketing department and one of my team was on a, like a 40 or 50 person call and they were discussing international territories and how they should approach the marketing for it. And this was a person who was from the territory and they, um, they were going over some of the marketing creatives for it. And this person had brought the point up of, Hey, you have a black model in the, in the ad. I just want to point out that there's not a large black population in the country. Like if we like I, I'm all for being inclusive and, and reaching out to other communities and races. But just so you know, like it would be better off for us to put a Middle Eastern person because we have a larger Middle Eastern population than anything. And everybody on the call just went dead silent and didn't say anything and got uncomfortable And it was like, I was so upset when I had found out about it in hindsight. And then one of the people who obviously I'm guarantee it was a white person had to take the rest of the day off because they were so upset by it. And I was like, well, that's probably not the best thing for you to be upset about. And if you had been upset about it, you should have talked about it. But it's just the idea of let's talk about this discomfort because instead everyone got quiet. This person who had said the comment that meant nothing by it, it was a benign comment who got turned into or was immediately labeled a racist and like a bigot and everybody else didn't say anything. And then when they got off the call, the person who was in charge of the call sent out a mass email being like, Hey, we need to be more sensitive about how we talk about race in these conversations. And I was like, that's not, I don't think you understand how that's not like, that's part of the problem. It's not like the actual mentioning of it. Yeah. 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 But if you follow that bouncing ball, it usually is based on corporate of some sort trying to cover their asses and it protects the model of the big money. It all circles back to the the apex of where's the money? Like, where is the money? You can have those conversations and you'll, uh, you'll definitely have those people that need to t- take the rest of the day off. The beginning of American fiction did a very good job showcasing this. Certainly tar educational in the educational realm it's important, very important to discuss this stuff. And as kind of an educational podcast, I think this is important because we're dissecting themes and, and storytelling and all of these amazing performances. This isn't just a big fat hug fest. It is that too, but it's also things that are really important to talk about within film. Yeah. And I mean, I think that one, one of the biggest problems I've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed this too, but I'm sure you have is that, and this going back to that story or anecdote that I referenced is that when something 
ambiguously racial happens, like whether it is in fact like something that is detrimental or just benign, whatever it may be. Like if somebody uses the word black, white people get really just on pins and needles and get uncomfortable. Not that you shouldn't be uncomfortable, but like don't run away from it. Like have a conversation about the discomfort because I'm thinking about that call that people were on. There's 50 people on that call. Did And there's a bunch of white people, I'm sure, because it was a predominantly white company. And if there's one person of color on that call, was everybody on that call turning to them being like, oh, is this, do you want to say something about this? Because that's just a shitty situation to be in. Because who wants to be the voice of a minority, especially when you're surrounded by people of another race? I can't imagine how uncomfortable that is. So instead, these white people kept their mouths shut, felt uncomfortable, took the day off, and nothing changed. Yeah. This and is why it's important to talk about it. Because yeah. again, we, we don't have answers. We're just guys talking about stuff people don't really want to talk about. A lot of people do have answers, and that's great. I love an answer. It might not be the right one. There's no universal answer. But I'm more apt to just continue asking questions to keep a dialogue going. And I think that's more important than having a solution. Yeah. And, and if anybody's listening to this and there's something that we say that makes you uncomfortable, I honestly just encourage you to sit with that and reflect on it. I don't think anything that we're going to say is in any way political or ideological. I think that we might state facts, but uh, I don't think that we're going to be going at it from any other angle. That's a really beautiful segue to the film we're going to be talking about today. Let's do it. Because if there's anything that will make you feel uncomfortable, it is the sensation that changed cinema as a whole which is 1989's spike lee's do the right thing this is a movie that took place in bedstuy brooklyn spike lee is from brooklyn he reps brooklyn so hard and if i had to give it just a, a man on the street summary man on the street summary of do the right thing what's it about it's about the hottest day of the summer or one of in the midst of a heat wave in deep brooklyn bedstuy brooklyn and everybody is on edge and things start to bubble up. The heat isn't just based on temperature. It's based on what's brewing deep inside of them. And the temperature is what rises the thermometer internally and brings things out of them. That's kind of like work because I don't like to give too much away, if anything. If you need to know what it's about without just sitting down and watch it, which is my preference for people, that's what I do. And the IMDB summary of it, Usually it's like, are you shitting me with these? But this is pretty damn good. On the hottest day of the year on a street in the Bedford Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn, everyone's hate and bigotry smolders and builds until it explodes into violence. I don't like it because it gives too much away. And that's the thing. I just want to sit and have an experience. I don't need to know that it explodes into violence. I can wait and watch and see what happens. I'd imagine it's going to. Right. But it's pretty good. It's a pretty damn good synopsis. What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think I, I think the great thing about the film is that it's just charting a neighborhood's journey through a day and these very mundane encounters of things that we do all of the time, whether it's like getting a slice of pizza or buying batteries or whatever it is, um, or just like hanging out with people on the street and the sort of interactions we have with people around us. And I think that that's it's really hard to make a movie about that and make it uh, interesting and like we want to stick around. But it's a film that absolutely is compelling in that way. I saw this movie for the first time, I think, when I was eight years old. Okay. This is the first R-rated movie I had ever seen. Okay. I was at home, or I was at my grandmother's house, and it was on HBO. And I don't know if anybody else was watching it or if it was there. I did not watch the entire thing. But I caught 
15 to 20 minutes of this movie and the colors, the vibrancy, they're showcasing a lifestyle that a lot of these characters cannot escape. And I was so drawn to it. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to live there. I wanted to go there. And ultimately, I did move to Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, later in life. But I had a real draw to this place where these things could happen because I felt internally when I saw this, I was still like a nice kid. I hadn't crossed over just yet into like full 90s angst. We were on the precipice of that. But I was starting to bubble up inside. There were things that were starting to feel that I didn't like and that I, things that I thought maybe I was slighted on. And it was this movie really the energy behind it really drives people, I think. When was the first time you saw this? So it's interesting that you bring this up because I I don't think I saw it until I was like 14 or 15, but I do remember seeing clips of it and like scenes from it on television when I was younger. And like of this, of Crooklyn, like of, of a few Spike Lee movies that I just remember feeling so... Like, I just thought they were bizarre just because I they had this very distinct voice to them that you don't see in other movies and this tone that's very different than other movies. And Spike Lee definitely had and has his own tone in his films. And it's almost like that experience you have when I, I think you and I had talked about this, like the first time you see like Pulp Fiction or something like it, and you're like, what the hell just happened to me? <laughs> like, mm. And it's interesting how those always end up being the movies that really have an impact on you because... They're not like anything else you've seen. I love that you brought up Pulp. I feel like this is Spike Lee's Pulp Fiction. <laughs> okay. And I feel like School Days and She's Gotta Have It are kind of his hybrid Reservoir Dogs. Okay. But this is his first mainstream, this changed things. And how could it not? In 1989, to see a movie like this, they were not, didn't exist. It was black exploitation stuff. It wasn't, and, and yes, that was more in the 60s and 70s. But in the 80s, movies just weren't of a high caliber. And this is something that really just shattered the glass, I feel. Yeah. Was there, I'm trying to think if there's another black filmmaker prior to Spike Lee that was really making a splash. No, Melvin Van Peebles. And he kind of took, I don't know, when you, you're talking about serious filmmaking, I, I can't think of other people. I'm sure, yeah. I hope that they're out there. I would rather be wrong or just ill-informed then there not be somebody yeah. that had the mantle that he took it from. But he is the guy. Yeah. And it's interesting even looking back at like black performers in the heyday of Hollywood, because I don't think there, I mean, there's a few like Al Jolson, like there were a few like handful of people that stuck out, but they weren't common. And it's just like sad to look back. And it's interesting because this will come up later when we talk about the Academy Awards, because I have lots to say about it. But it's just like amazing how white the film industry was. Yeah, it really is. And if you were black and talented, odds are you're in this movie. True Romance is very heavily known for having one of the most star-studded cast of all time. And this isn't, and it should be, because yeah. it's potentially better. Yeah. It's at least on par, but in all likelihood, it's better. There's some amazing people that went on to just do phenomenal work and other yeah. things. It's funny just seeing like a young uh, Rosie Perez and like Martin Lawrence showing up in like the background of scenes and Frankie Faison, like all of those guys. Um, I, yeah, I mean, let's even, do it. Let's run through it. Let's, let's run do through it. it. Right now, I'll just read off the cast list. Danny Aiello, Ossie Davis, Ruby D, Richard Edson, Giancarlo Esposito, Spike Lee himself, of course, 
Bill Nunn, John Turturro, Paul Benjamin, Frankie Faison, Robin Harris, Miguel Sandoval, John Savage, Samuel L. Jackson, Rosie Perez, and Martin Lawrence. Oh, and Frank Vincent uh, and Steve Park. Like, man, these guys, it just, it goes on and on. Yeah. Of course, Sam Jackson being not just the first post-opening credit sequence character that you see on screen, but also being the Venn diagram overlap between these two true romance and do the right thing casts that are really all time. I love the opening title sequence, like with Rosie Perez yeah, just so dancing and boxing. Did you know or hear anything about how that came to be, how Rosie Perez was discovered, so to speak? Uh, no, I do, I do know that she was a fly girl. I loved the story that I read about, and I got the little Rashomon double account. One person saw it this way. One person saw it this way of Spike Lee having a big party at his house. And Rosie Perez apparently showed up and was on top of a speaker dancing. And Spike Lee gives his account of saying, I was afraid she was going to fall and hurt herself and I'd get sued. So I had her get down and she was yelling at me and cursing me out. And I just immediately offered her the role on the spot. That's it amazing. Was just, she was perfect. Rosie Perez tells a story that <laughs> Spike Lee had a bunch of women at the house to have an ass shaking contest. To say. <laughs> and so she took it to another level and, and she won. Regardless, Rosie Perez was at a party at Spike Lee's house. We know that. And he was very smitten and impressed and decided to give her this role, which is amazing because the opening credit sequence, it just screams late 80s. We're like, we're busting into the 90s. This is a door kick into 1990, basically. And it creates a level of energy that I felt all through the 90s of angst and just kind of disruption, regardless of where you were or what your circumstances were in life. But it's a violent dance, man. It's sexy at the same time, but it's aggressive. She's yeah. going for it. And there is a lot of that Fly Girls from a Living Color inspiration or what inspired the Fly Girls from a Living Color. Yeah, I mean, I think that sequence, I think the film inspired a lot, although it comes from a lot, because I think that there's a lot of Basquiat and and like Ernie Barnes, who are like famous black painters who like their their work definitely shows up in the colors of the compositions of the film. But yeah, I think that there was so many... Like the the credit sequence to Martin Show, like is absolutely one hundred percent a like a throwback to do the right thing. One hundred percent, and I'm not even sure I've ever made that connection. But I grew up watching Martin too, and and that was just I was drawn to it. I think in the same way. And that color palette, you're right. That Basquiat color palette is just so my God, it draws you in. I don't know if cross colors were really a thing back then, the clothing line, but right. definitely if they weren't into the early 90s like that was it like whenever i saw cross colors i was like damn it's that color palette it's like this angsty african colors of of red yellow and green right but it doesn't have that like soft subtlety of a rastafarian energy it's just there's a the aggression behind it it's kind of in your face and I dig it. Yeah, it's probably the most colorful film that I had seen up to in that point of my life. Because a lot of, I mean, films seem to be a lot of, not monochrome, but like they keep their color palettes very simple and uniform. So let's dive into the plot lines here. I think this movie works on such an amazing level because they keep it in a 24-hour period. And they have a very tight-knit set. It's almost like a play. There aren't too many sets to move around. There are, but there aren't. And they're all, you start to realize throughout the film just how close to everything, everything else is. 
because the way Ernest Dickerson shoots this intentionally, I'm sure, is it, you have these vignettes. There are these different people doing different things in their space. And as the movie progresses, you start to realize just how on top of each other they are. It doesn't start that way. I got the impression that Frankie Faison, Paul Benjamin, and Robin Harris were a couple blocks down from Sal's and that Ruby D's character, mother sister is a couple blocks in a different direction. It's like, no, these people are in a block. Yeah. Like they are on top of each other, which is pretty well. said. I mean, the, the, there's that opening shot with senior love daddy, but then when Mr. Hey, Mr. Mr. Senior, Mr. Love, daddy senior love daddy, I apologize. But when Mookie, one of my favorite things is when, <laughs> when Spike Lee comes out of the house in that, first and like his first uh, appearance in the street and he's walking out of the gate and there's those like solicitors or people trying to sell him something and they're walking he's like hell no <laughs> he just Dude, walked he walks that like... made my favorite quote that made one of my the, honestly the all-time quote category for this i said it's a throwaway but there are jehovah's witnesses outside his yes. gate and he walks out and just before they say a word <laughs> hell no yeah and he does it very like at such a volume that it just so good. And you get it, man, because I grew up in a place that was wildly religious, but we didn't have religion in our house. Right. So there was a lot of hell no when people came around. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I get that. Yeah. It's so funny. Actually, let's talk about this real quick. Like Spike Lee casting himself, which I am more than happy about because I thought, I think if any director should be casting himself in a role, like Spike Lee can get away with it. Whereas I'm not that crazy about Quentin Tarantino casting himself, in it. No. but he is works as Mookie. And I think that he was like perfectly cast. I also cannot throw stones in my glass house because I'm a director that cast myself in a, in a role in my own movie. In fairness to you, you've cast yourself in a role of one of your films. The other one you did by necessity. That's fair. Okay. You know, that's let's fair. Not, let's I'll give not you that. make you more of an egomaniac than you actually are. Yeah. I loved him taking this role and I loved it, especially on this rewatch. I think it ages really well. I think earlier on, I wasn't crazy about it because Spike Lee, like a lot of people at this time is a very specific, unique character. We don't have a lot of these people in this business mm. anymore and it's a real issue. But if you were to draw caricatures of actors of any race, gender, anything from the 1980s and 90s, it would be easy to do and funny. And today everybody's pretty and it's all kind of like the same. Maybe there's a, there aren't any gap toothed people. There aren't any, it's just, it's annoying. And he has such a specificity to his look and he just plays the character well. Yeah. Before I even get into the breakdown, because I want to try and, and go through the subplots and how, yeah. and we'll, so we can talk about overlap. Did you like any of these characters? Did I like any of these characters? Um, I mean, I like I I like them all in the way that they all have. You enjoy watching them, uh, you know, like they're entertaining to watch and they're relatable, very much so. I like Mookie. I like Senior Love Daddy. I love Demare, and I love Mother Sister. And then, I mean, there's a lot of other characters that are very complicated. I think the only character that I really flat out dislike is probably um, John Trichero's character, Pino. Hmm. Tell me why. Uh, actually, no, there's two. I'm sorry. There is another character. It's uh, John Trichero's Pino and then Giancarlo Esposito's Bugging Out. Um, <laughs> okay. Because they are both just looking for a fight. Yeah. 
I agree. They both are looking for a fight, but it's the film does a really good job of bugging out, man. I mean, this is a double entendre. He is a live wire, but his eyes through those Coke bottle glasses are bugging out. And this dude is corny as hell. His getup is just whack compared to other people that are just like the Martin Lawrence character and, and his crew on the stoop. It's just that's more of a relaxed. They look good. You know, you're like, oh, damn. But he's relying on these. How much did you pay for your Jordans thing? You know, he's trying to look the part. He's corny. This dude is corny. I felt for him. I just I, I felt for the guy. And Saturo, I felt for because he was a product of his environment. And that doesn't mean he gets to shirk responsibility or accountability for his thoughts or behaviors. But there was empathy. I think this is just such an interesting movie because I don't know that I liked any of them. Really? As far Not as just one. Li- liked. Would I want to sit down on a stoop with all of them? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> right? But just okay. each character is so well written that they have their moment to be heroic, their moment to be forgiving, their moment to be despicable, their moment to be all of it. And it's universal. We're talking, what What do you want to say, loosely, a 15 to 20 person ensemble? Yeah, it's pretty robust in that sense. There are a lot of people in it. Yeah. And they're all memorable. They are all memorable and distinct. As an Italian-American, did you know too many Pinos growing up? Is that part of it? Uh, For sure. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, I grew up in, like, the most of my family was, like, the cast of The Sopranos. Like, it was hard to get away from that. But it's interesting that you bring that up because I feel like, I don't know if you know this, and this is, it's an interesting anecdote to talk about, especially in the context of this film. But as far as stereotypes are concerned, do you know the history of Italian characters in film and, like, how that all came about? Not at all. So in the early early 20th century, people did not like the Italians because we we're unlikable. Uh, we, were, we were thought of as uneducated, ignorant and violent and impulsive, just womenizers and everything. So Hollywood was not keen on hiring Italian actors, but they loved writing Italian characters and people loved seeing Italian characters in movies. So what they did was they'd cast non-Italian actors to play the Italian characters And what those actors would do is play exaggerated, almost parodied versions of the Italians that they thought they knew and should be. So that's where they got that like machismo and like that bravado and like, oh, like, and what happened was, uh, I think James Cagney is probably the most famous example of this. You'd have characters who are basically idolized or turned into these icons as Italian characters. I think like Marlon Brando is another one, but in a different way. But Italian-American men would go to the movies, see them, and then start emulating that, thinking like, oh, this is what a man, an Italian man should be like. And so that's actually what caught on is the entire Italian identity culture that we see with like men in the United States now is that perception of like, you know, Don John or like, you know, Joey from Friends. Like there's that sense of it. And we it's mm. it's funny how it's life imitating art, imitating life. Yeah, it is. It gets super meta down that rabbit hole. Yeah. And it's really interesting that you bring that up because for anybody who can tolerate Gilbert Godfrey's voice, and I hope it's the majority of you because I love it. When you're done with this podcast, run, don't walk to the archives of the Gilbert Gottfried podcast for the Danny Aiello interview, where he just talks about being an Italian American. He is so proud. He's such a proud man. And he would go on and on. Oh, these people on the Sopranos. Oh, the AOA, AOA. I'm an Italian American. I've lived here my whole life. I've never heard anybody talk like that. They don't talk like that. that's not how an Italian American speaks. 
And it's interesting to hear you give that history because it did. It bled into even modern day of the 21st century in the most successful, popular, and best, by all accounts, television series of all time. It's predicated on those stereotypes. Yeah. And it's just, it's just funny because like representation matters and like what we see, we actually emulate and think that that we take for reality. Well done. That's a great quote. Soundbite. So we've got all of these characters and just to break it down, there is Mookie. He, Mookie is really the person we're following by and large. He's a pizza delivery guy. He looks like a real shit father, but he in my opinion, he's like Rosie Perez's character saying, I haven't seen you in ages. You always say you're coming over. He just, he lives down the street. His son's there. And the grandmother doesn't think much of him. But he is working. And presumably, I don't remember seeing him ever giving them money. But you see at the beginning, he's got that 450 nut, you know, like $450. He's counting out the cash. So it's like, what's that for? Is it for him? Is he trying to get the hell out of here? Is it, we, we don't know and we don't need to. It's just, it makes Mookie protagonists that you're not necessarily in love with. The guy's work ethic is shit, right? He's always just wandering around. And everything's a break. He's just walking pizzas around. And he's trying to say how hard he's working. But he's a personality and he's the neighborhood and he's lovable and he's charismatic. So he's a really interesting protagonist to follow through the neighborhood, and then the other two bugging out. He's just a man on a mission, a narrow-minded quest to shut down Sal's famous pizzeria because they don't have any black men on the wall. There are no black artists, figures, or representation on the wall of fame. It's all Italian-Americans. Okay. So Radio Raheem's on the move. He's doing his thing, just beatboxing around. He is just really Debo's grandfather, right, from Friday. I feel like the character Debo... He's respected, he's feared, but he's not cruel. And we even get a scene with a Mr. Softy truck that drives through. So you got that little Debo association too. I was like, man, Friday took some stuff from this. This is cool. Then you got mother, sister perched on her windows. She's not on the stoop. She's classier than that. She's in the windowsill. She's watching, right? You got the mayor who I guess stumbles around too. He's the guy, he's on the move. I mean, he stays within the, like probably like the same 20 yards of <laughs> Yeah. He paces. <laughs> yeah, but he's another guy. Ossie Davis yeah. uh, is phenomenal. He's just such an amazing actor. And I remember, I think the first thing I saw him in where I was just like, who is this guy? This is insane and hilarious was Bubba Hotep. Yes, I forgot about that. And I mean, much later in life for him. Yeah. A, a bizarre, ridiculous, dry cult comedy. Fantastic. But God. <laughs> yeah. He's just so damn good. And he plays this really sad drunk. Yeah. He's a sad drunk and he's had a hard life. And you never get to feel sorry for him for too, too long because when he goes into his poor me speech, you've got that representation of modern day of 1989 of the younger generation being like, look, you old fool. You did that to yourself. You put yourself in those situations and I don't feel bad for you and I don't respect you. And you're just like, this is harsh, but is it wrong? I feel like that's debatable just because, and I'm thinking about this from the terms of 1989, 25 years after civil rights, Brown versus the Board of Education, and DeMare grew up in a world that was vastly different. Not that Black people in the 80s had more opportunities, but I think that it was probably a lot less 
and Ozzie Davis's days, um, the mayor's days. And it's interesting because he has that speech about you've never seen your five kids starving and like not being able to do anything about it. And that's just like, I don't know. You don't really know the circumstances behind it, but it's just it's a sad thing to consider. It is. And I love that point, man. You raise a really good point about the generational difference, not just in mindset, but in time in the country opportunity. And they do a great job letting us have that conversation without force feeding it to us. Right. But at the same time, the kid has a point, but it's a point based on the ignorance of youth. Right. And that's a really interesting thing too. Now we're getting into mother, sister, and the mayor are of a different time. They're a different time. It represents a time past. So they're not too actively involved. It's why she stays, I think, in the window and she's not in the shit on the stoop. She's not in the thick of it. She's removed from it. And he's wandering around just trying to make sense of it all, trying to get himself a Miller High Life in a neighborhood with nothing but Miller Light. (laughs) And yeah, it's it's really fascinating to look at that. This is a heartbreaking movie. And I just want to keep going through all of these orbits so we can just kind of dip in and out and reference. You've got the, the holy trinity of Robin Harris, Frankie Faison and Paul Benjamin. And they're just representing all kinds. It's that's a play in and of itself. It really is. That's like if they added a cast member to Waiting for Godot and put it in bed <laughs> And I just want to stay with them all day. Yeah. They have very interesting conversations. And it's funny because Robin Harris, I remember when I was a kid, and like it's so funny how age and your perception is. Because Robin Harris, I imagined being so much older than he is. Because he died in like 1990, 1991. He was 36 when he died. I know. That's the part where I was just like, he was only 36? Damn. So it's just like funny how age and your perception of it is different. And he was a very talented guy who died way too young. Yeah. And Frankie Faison, who went on to have probably the biggest career out of the three of them. Yeah. He is, in my opinion, the least involved of those three characters. He's there more as kind of a bounce back foil or just a high five guy out of Robin Harris's jokes when they're shitting on Paul Benjamin. But I mean, that's one of my favorite actors for so many different performances he's done big or small and paul benjamin i will come back to him because later in the film it's just the ending of this movie has so much weight and all these characters really get an opportunity to do something shine show their true colors and i think that's another part of all of the color here is that we're a lot of shades yeah is one thing yeah for sure i don't think that there is a pure soul among the entire roster of characters it's funny that you mentioned it being like a play because I was rewatching it this one time. I was like, you know what? Damn, I would love to see Spike Lee write a play. <laughs> and I know that he's enamored with Broadway and like theater. So it's just something that I would love to see. But there's just so many moments that feel like a play. And the characters have like these really complex moments of humanity and, and complexity and uh, bigotry and ignorance and self-involvement. And it's just really interesting to see. I feel like we don't make that many on ensemble films were in before we used to make a lot of them. So it's really great to see that and have a population of many characters, but also really rich characters at that, even if they're just showing up for a scene or two. I think some of the masters, uh, no pun intended, Paul Thomas Anderson and Quentin Tarantino have started to do that again after maybe not doing it so much for a time, specifically PTA, like Licorice Pizza was a great ensemble cast film. And Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood had so many people in it. It was just really great. But I, ever since Robert Altman passed, he was the master of it, in my view. 
Yeah, for sure. But I mean, even in like the the 1950s and 40s, 50s and 60s, Alfred Hitchcock, whoever the director was, John Huston, like like all of them were, it may have had a star and it may have been a star vehicle, but there was always an ensemble to support them. And like Frank Capra, like Frank Frank Capra Capra films were like largely ensemble. And it was hard to see, like, I don't think you've ever, I don't think you see many movies back then that just had a few characters interacting. It was always many. And I think over time- I'm going to see Casablanca in a week and a half at the Bev. And it's like, now this is the ultimate rotating subplot cast everywhere. And Do the Right Thing is really on par with that. Yeah, These characters are so important. You've got, let's just break it down. You've got the Stoop crew with Martin Lawrence at the head. Or maybe not at the head. Do you know who the actor who plays the head of that Stoop crew is? No, but I wanted to look this up because I absolutely recognized him from something else. So I'm going to do that while you keep talking. So you've got Mother, Sister on a Perch, the mayor wandering the streets. You've got Smiley, who we haven't brought up and is probably the most important character. If we're really honest about it, he's he's just critical to this film. He is the the fool that wanders through. And I don't know how to pronounce the actor's name. It's Roger Genevois Smith. I've known him from some other things over the years. He's a fantastic actor, and he does a really, really great job as Smiley who is this developmentally challenged guy, whether he was born that way or he suffered some sort of injury, he's got a problem. And he wanders around trying to sell these pictures he makes that are photographs of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And he draws on them and kind of makes them his own and just tries to sell them and carries them. And it's it's what he does. It's his work. It's important to him. And these two leaders really represent the through line of the film and how pacifism versus justified violence is just the back and forth throughout all this. Like, do you stand strong and fight? Do you back down and just put that energy into the world and hope that it meets you and comes back towards you even through violence? And and that's a question that never gets answered. The biggest success of this film is unanswered questions, in my view. So you have Smiley wandering around. You've got Radio Raheem. You've got Mookie... His girl, Rosie, is kicking it back at the house. And then you've got the pizza guys. And everybody's just in orbit around. And through it all, you have Mr. You got to get respect on your tongue when you say his name, my friend. Mr. Senor Love Daddy. Just post it up. And the fact that he can see the whole neighborhood and he's got the world view from in the mic is pretty cool. That's an interesting thing. I didn't actually remember the, when I'd seen this previously that he is right in the thick of it. Yeah, observing the entire thing. And it's funny because I was reading the behind the scenes and Samuel L. Jackson was just talking about how he was bored and he felt isolated from everything. <laughs> you can see it when he's waving for his sandwich in the background. He's like, yeah. somebody let Sam out. He wants to come hang with everybody. <laughs> Love Samuel L. Jackson. Every face in this movie is memorable. Who is your favorite crew slash cast member? Who is your favorite, like the person to follow? Or do you have something you want to say about multiples of them? Like what really hit home for you? Sal is a very interesting character because he's complex. Like there's the whole relationship he has with Jade Mookie's sister and his relationship with his sons and how he obviously doesn't subscribe to the same worldview as his son Pino. And there's that scene he has when he's sitting with Pino and he's just he's like, I don't want to go to a different neighborhood. Like I, he's like, these people like grew up on my food. He's like, I'm proud of that. And it's a really touching moment for him, especially because I think when I was younger, I always saw Sal as more of a villain than anything. So it was interesting to have that sort of dimension to him, 
like as I get older and see Pino as more of a troublesome character. But I think it's probably Mookie would probably be the one that I just, he always has the interesting things going on. I think that the things that hit me were more than character. I love, it's really adorable to see the mayor trying to woo um, (laughs) mother sister and how much she detests him. Yes. And outright. The, but the best exchange is when he's like, she, he's like, 18 years you've been talking about me. What have I ever done to you? And she's like, you're a drunken fool. And he's like, besides that. <laughs> yeah, that is. That's one of my quotes, too. I was like, this is amazing. I love this. And that exchange is just so endearing. And because they come from a different generation and because he reminds her of people who have hurt her and she has this guard up and this hatred for him that softens over time as he sees a window and tries to get in. And it's adorable, too, that they're actually husband and wife in real life. The fact that they're married, that's always fun to see. So I enjoyed that, and it was a nice kind of reprieve from how heavy-duty a lot of the other stuff gets. I gotta be honest, I wasn't crazy about the Rosie Perez-Spike Lee stuff. If there was one thing that had to go, if somebody said, you have to remove something from this, that's the threat it would be. I think she does a great job. I think he does a great job with her. I just... I didn't need the levity that that provided. I think if anything, because Mookie seems like a very, from the shit he gets from Pino and Sal, like I, you can tell why he's not really like gung-ho about working at his job. Sure. Because <laughs> no matter what he does, they're calling him a fuck up. So I feel like he would have been probably, I think that's his fatal flaw, right? Is his relationship with Rosie Perez and and his son. In what sense? In what sense do you think that's his fatal flaw? Just because, and you had brought this up earlier, is that you feel like he's not the greatest father in the world. Yeah, and it's a good representation, and I wouldn't do it any differently, and I wouldn't necessarily take it out. A lot of the things that I was kind of, oof, like the you brought up the Jade scene with Sal. It made me uncomfortable. I didn't like it. I didn't like the character stuff. And that's what this movie is. Like my instinct was like, I wish they would have cut this. I don't think it adds anything, but it's so inaccurate and it's 180 degrees opposite because it adds so much and it does what this movie does best, which is make me uncomfortable. And maybe that's what it is. Maybe the Rosie Perez stuff doesn't make me uncomfortable enough, Fair, but it does upset me a little bit. I do like the grandmother kind of cursing them out. It just adds to the neighborhood. It adds to the struggles of that neighborhood. I really loved a few of the scenes the frank vincent scene fantastic it's truly sensational so frank vincent is what's he known for what's he most known he's been for? good he was a good fella i'm sure people yeah. would know him from that yeah that's true he's the, yeah he's the the guy that <laughs> ends up in the trunk in goodfellas but he has this convertible what is it a caddy it's uh it's a it's convertible i don't know if it's caddy but it's definitely a convertible boat of a car gold gorgeous the kids are outside and they've got the they're spraying the fire hydrant and things and he's like gotta drive by and they're pissed he's in the neighborhood to begin with and he comes by and martin lawrence and his buddy shower him and just soak him it's so funny though because he shows up and he's like hey you better not get my fucking car wet <laughs> yeah yeah, and if, I, just... guarantee, I guarantee you, if he hadn't said a word, they would have like shielded the, the hydrant and he would have gone about his day. But like, because he so, shows up as an asshole, it's like he is totally instigating that. Maybe. He's like, don't you motherfuckers do a thing. And you're like, oh, you got it. You just have something coming. I just, I kept saying, Frank, put it in reverse. <laughs> Think another street, side street, <laughs> man. You know what's coming. <laughs> And the dialogue, Spike Lee writes such sharp dialogue. It's so damn funny. So you've got the cops that roll up. Immediately, they just happen to be right behind them. It's uh, Miguel Sandoval and Rick Aiello. 
and they roll up and Miguel Sandoval is taking a statement while Rick Aiello shuts down the, the thing. And he's, Frank Vincent's going nuts. I want the rest made. I want this. I want that. And Miguel Sandoval, knowing that we're not going to do anything about this, just takes out a notepad to try and placate him. He says, did you happen to get their names, sir? Their names. Did I get their names? Yeah. Yeah. Mo and Joe. I got their names. All right. Mo and Joe. Mo and Joe what, sir? Mo and Joe what? Mo and Joe what? I don't know. Mo and Joe Black. And Miguel Sandoval says to They're brothers? Face, oh, they're brothers? Oh, yeah. They were brothers. And it's like, this, this is genius. This whole exchange. Really what it says about law enforcement, what it says about the entitlement of people thinking something must be done because I personally have been wronged. What it says about racism with the brothers. What it says about everything. It's this brief hilarious exchange. Frank Vincent is gone, never to be seen or heard from again. And it's brilliant. It's just so damn funny. And that's a real testament to his writing. I'm having a great time and I'm laughing. Genius dialogue. And what the hell am I supposed to do, huh? Frank Vincent says to the cop. And the cop responds, I suggest you get in your car before these people strip it clean. And now I'm not laughing anymore. And now you kind of sit back and say... Oh, right. This is what these police and everybody thinks of this neighborhood. Were they capable of it? Sure. Absolutely. They could have. But I didn't see anybody that looked like they were going to strip a car. I saw people on a hot day trying to relax in a fire hydrant. But these are the presumptions that are made and the biases and the hatred and all this shit. And it was really wild to just have that hilarious experience pull back instantly with that one line. Yeah, and I think there's a few of them. I mean, there's definitely those moments in the pizzeria because with like bugging out and with Mookie and Pino's exchanges and stuff, because there's these moments of like hilarity followed by like, oh, like this is the stakes are high and this is mm. legit. Yeah, he's very good at that. The tension created. Yeah. And it's so funny because I think and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like growing up, Spike Lee always had a reputation and it's probably by white America, that he's a man with an ax to grind and has like a very one note, like just redundant point he's trying to make. And I think that his films are so much more complex than that. They are funny. They are tragic. Like they are dramatic. They, they explore like very dynamic characters. And I think that that's a disservice to him to put him in that light. I think so too. And I have my issues with some of his films after this. Some that I just think tackle one too many subplots or three too many subplots and, and it takes away from the greater good and the point and the whole that he's mastered. A lot of his scores, the volume on the sound design is so high, it's affecting and distracting in a way that's just meant to manipulate, obviously, and, and it just convolutes things for me. But this movie does neither of those things. And I think that's why... For my money, it's far and away his best. And I love the use of Fight the Power. We kind of talk about Fight the Power, the yeah. public enemy song that just, yeah. it was the song of the time. It's the only song that Radio Raheem plays on his boombox, right? It's all he's got. It's all he's, he's got. got. That great exchange with Bugging Out, right? Where he's just like, hey, man, you got anything else? And he's like, I like, this is what I like. <laughs> But it's funny that every time Radio Heem shows up like that, there's a different element of that song being played out. So like when he gets in it with the the Spanish guys and they start playing their music over his and they're like dueling like uh, boom boxes, there's it's always an, a new and interesting 
uh, angle on the whole Radio Raheem and fight the power. Yeah, it is. And I love that you brought that up because that was a really poignant scene for me. That was like a top five scene because you have this whole struggle between one member of the black community. You've got four or five members of the Latino community and they're, they're battling back and forth. And like I said, he's got a little Debo in him and he wins. And the thing that I love that Spike Lee does is he has the guy at the controls, the Latino guy at the controls of his boombox, just kind of turn it all the way down and lower his head. And it's like, you got it. He gives him the respect, but it doesn't end there. Radio Raheem turns around, walks away and throws up the fist. And then they all start kind of going after him and calling names and get back here and taunting. And it's like, oh man, Spike Lee just gets it. This shit is so real. I didn't grow up in Bed-Stuy. I'm not black. But I grew up in a insane, hostile, toxic masculinity-ridden community. Yeah, where people would get in a fight, or get in a fight, something would happen, it would end, and if you won or didn't lose too bad and started walking away, that's when people will start talking. That's when they start talking shit and running up and all that stuff. And the male ego gets, and you turn around and you go back from what you're going to wait until I walk away. And it's just, that it really leans into what Martin Luther King's trying to say of just walk away and turn the other cheek. And then there's the Malcolm side of it where it's like, listen, I was threatened and I'm not going to let that happen. And if violence is justified and necessary, it just seems like this really simple end of a scene where they follow him down the street. And it's like, nah, man, there's so much complexity in this. And that's why Spike Lee's a genius. It's funny because, I mean, it's not really funny, but none of the confrontations or misunderstandings or whatever you want to define them as is like forced. It all feels very organic and natural. There's that moment when Bugging Out is just hanging out on the street and John Savage, is that who it is? Yeah. When he walks by and he scuffs his Air Jordans, obviously did not mean it. It was an accident, but, but he was out walking was... like an asshole. When you, really I mean, he was wa- he was walking like an asshole, but I don't think he was like out to like start shit with Buckingham. <laughs> Although it's the the Celtics jersey that really does it. <laughs> but it's like even before that with Sal's in the beginning, there's that tension when Bugging Out wants extra cheese and he's like, "It's two extra dollars," and you're like, "Come on, Sal, just give him the friggin' cheese." And like it's funny because throughout the movie, people are asking him for extra cheese, and you're like, "Oh, all right, I get it now." <laughs> But yeah, and I feel like that incites bugging out and then he starts talking about the wall and it just turns into a whole thing. Yeah, the masculinity and what it means to fight and not fight and what that means to your manhood mm. is that running theme throughout this that really goes back and forth between Martin and Malcolm and bugging out when they're in his ear, his boys, his friends are like, yo, your Jordan's a fucked up. <laughs> And they're really trying to push the envelope and antagonize the situation. They want him to burst. They want him to do something. And that's not who he is. Bugging out's not Martin. He's not Malcolm. There's almost a, which one do I follow? Like you got to pick a path and I don't know which one to walk down. And I think that was a, a real thing at the time and still is for a lot of folks in a lot of different communities for a lot of different reasons. It's just, which road do I take here? And it was interesting too. Yeah. He's walking like an asshole, the guy, John Savage's character. And then he's just kind of dismissive. There's an entitlement even to his gate. Yeah. And he bought the brownstone 
He's yes. not living there. He just he bought the brownstone. He's got the Celtics jersey on. The ultimate insult. The ultimate. Go back to Massachusetts. And he turns and says, I was born in Brooklyn. But the way he says it is kind of like he was born in Brooklyn, but maybe he moved up to Boston, made some money. Yeah. And he had all these opportunities, and they came back to buy in this neighborhood because it's a free country, and he got a good deal. There's a lot of implications, and it's a little hostile and a little angry in the subtext. But I understood it. It seemed justified and within the realm of the story. Let me be clear beyond a doubt. Like, John Savage's character is an asshole. It's just like, I, I love the organic nature of that. It's not like he walked up out of nowhere and like pushed bugging out, which is what would happen in a lesser movie. Like, it was just like this organic misunderstanding or, you know, just brush that like cost it. And I bought it. Yeah, me too. We well, got to lean into the end of this movie. Yeah, well, we have to talk about the camera work first because I feel I have so much to say about the goddamn camera work. It's so good. Like, there's so many good push-in shots, especially there's the montage, the racial slurs montage that they get into, where it's just like the camera assaulting characters going right up in their faces while they're just going on rants, insulting other races. And then it's funny because I, I don't think I know, I mean, I've definitely noticed before, but like how confrontational the characters are with the camera in this movie. Like, they're like it's like right up in their face. Like, it's a Jonathan Demi, Silence of the Lambs, like right up in your grill. And it's it's very effective. Absolutely. I think that scene that you talked about, it's kind of a, a precursor or a spiritual sibling to the 25th hour montage. Yes, yes. That just attacks races and communities, attacking races and communities and saying all the things that some of the characters actually say, but certainly what they feel repressed and want to just, ah, because they're in this hot box yeah. community. And they're talking about, oh, there was another great quote from Paul Benjamin, man. He's just looking at the Korean store across the street. And he just says, either those Koreans are geniuses or your black asses are just plain dumb. And what it means for him to own a business, like what that looks like. It's like, oof, oof, yeah. there's that, uh, that class thing. And we're in a hot box of a neighborhood that just, it's boiling over. And the camera work that does just push in while they're pushing back is amazing. So I really do love that he gets in people's faces with that and that we started the birth of that. Here's a close-up of people talking to camera saying all the hatred that they have inside of them. And they, my favorite shot of the movie, I think, is the love versus hate. Oh, yeah. So you've got Mookie walking down the street and he just crosses paths with radio and they dap up and they're talking real quick and he sees his knuckle rings and he's like, oh, man, those are great. Those are cool. He's just shining on him and he goes to explain him and you have this two shot and the camera starts to move and the moment it happens spikily like a ballerina just moves right out of frame and now we're just in his face and it's completely we didn't cut he's talking to camera and the knuckles and the screen and blah 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 and love ko's love for the wind and you know if i love you i love you but if i hate you and it's like, man, this is some serious camera work. And yeah. the, the actors had to really crush that. Like he's yeah. up in the frame. You got to make sure you're doing everything technically right. And then you got to get this here. And then focus puller has got to do all that. Like there's a lot of people's jobs 
yeah that, that had to work in harmony for that to take place and it was really beautiful the way they did it i mean I, and that goes uh, not just for that shot like i mean you notice it in that shot but like it's so many other shots like just like you'll be inside of a building and then you'll be like through the window out onto the street there's just so many really great and just the technical requirements for that of like just making sure that your aperture is open to a specific setting when you're like pushing through into different light is there's a lot of great shots in the film they really are. And I love his angles because he's an up angle guy and he's a down angle yes. guy and he's not afraid to just get weird with it. Yeah. And he and it's funny that you brought up the Quentin Tarantino thing earlier because I hadn't realized those those connections. But I think Quentin Tarantino and Spike Lee are among, I don't know how many other directors do, but they run their own cameras. I know Steven Soderbergh does too sometimes. Paul Thomas Anderson does as well. It's so fascinating. And yeah, yeah. Robin Harris has the line about Mike Tyson. Fuck I was, was going to bring it up. Bring it up he ain't shit. Tyson. He, ain't he goes, shit. he ain't shit. You know, he punched me in a dream. He better wake up and apologize. And I'm like, oh, maybe that's really why Spike Lee didn't like Quentin. Because Quentin just lifted that line for Reservoir Dogs. I mean, Quentin steals a lot of crap. But um, yeah. And then he's like, he's like, I remember when he mugged that woman over <laughs> like Lexington. Yeah. <laughs> so Sal's Pizzeria, bugging out. We talked about the boycott. He's just been on this crusade no one wants any part of, trying to get everybody on board for a boycott because there's no black representation on the Wall of Fame, and it's all Italian-Americans. And he's running loose through the streets. Meanwhile, Sal's had a wonderful day. He's gotten to see Jade. He's smitten with her, creepy or otherwise. And it's hot as hell, so they've made a ton of money. And he's talking about how he wants to have his sons put into the sign. Sal and Son's famous pizzeria. And you see Vito and Pino's reactions to that, which are different. And then he talks about, Mookie, you've always been like a son. There'll always be a place for you here. And they're locked up. They're closed for the day. And Martin Lawrence and his crew are at the door. They want a slice. Sal's feeling good. He opens the door and let him in. But by doing that, the door is now open. And Bugging Out has convinced Radio Raheem, who's still pissed because Sal earlier in the day made him turn his music off that they need to boycott. So they roll up together and they got a unified front with Smiley and Smiley's a huge part of this too, because he is the dog that has no problems with other dogs until the dog he's with has a problem with other dogs. And he just, he gets activated and his energy is so important throughout this scene, I think. And ultimately what happens is Danny Aiello loses his mind he starts throwing out the word that only Pino's really been using that nobody should be calling anybody. And you start to see some true colors and some bias and some hatred. And it's just, it's ugly. It gets really ugly and it reaches a crescendo that results in him hitting, the, fight the power, screaming. It's assaulting us the whole time. It's screaming throughout this entire exchange between bugging out Radio Raheem, Smiley, and Danny and Sal. And, uh, Ultimately, Sal snaps and just takes his baseball bat and smashes the radio into pieces. And Radio Raheem grabs him. And then they spill out into the street. And it's just all hell breaks loose. It's a huge brawl. Let's do parts. What did you think up to that point? Everything was escalating to that. And you could see how, like, everything, all these small encounters throughout the day were leading up to a confrontation of that. And especially with, like, John Chaturro's Pino when he's, like, yelling at Smiley on the sidewalk. And it's definitely lending to the these tensions that are building. So it felt like it played out naturally. And Sal, definitely not something that comes out of nowhere or feels forced. It's another instance of it feeling extremely organic. And 
Mm-hmm. At that moment, you're just like, everyone, just please take a step back and calm down because like this is going to get ugly. You agree with everybody, basically, and that's a that's a hard place to be. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you can, but I think what this movie does is it, it shows our own biases, and you can side with whoever you want. You can, yeah. There's no right or wrong answer, and right. just really forcing you to look at your core beliefs and where your brain automatically goes. This is an exercise. This film is an exercise, like a Rorschach test. What do you see? It's really tense up to this point, but once they get outside, the cops show up. The cops show up in record-breaking time, which I don't think in the history of New York City any cop has ever shown up to. Like, they are right on it. Yeah, they're there, and it's they are conveniently around throughout the film, right when you would rather they not be. Right. Almost like they're waiting for the situations that they swoop in on. And you got a couple cruisers, and they um, put Radio Raheem in a chokehold, and they rest bugging out. And they got Radio Raheem lifted off the ground and they ultimately go too long with it. If he ever obviously never should have been lifted off the ground to begin with, but they're trying to um, subdue him, I suppose. And in that effort, they kill him. I think it's Rick Aiello's character that just... It does uh, it, yeah. Yeah, and, and he ends up he ends up killing him and he just falls to the ground like a sack of potatoes. Yeah. And um, it's just... Heartbreaking. Man. I'm not necessary. We, it's so hard to watch in 2024 because absolutely, it's like, we haven't gone anywhere. It's so hard. This was a statement that needed to be made in 1989. And I'm sure it needed to be made prior to that. And now you have this dead representation of the community that, just gets whisked away the cops throw him in the back of the car and just drive off and it's such an affecting scene and you don't know you don't know what's going to happen everybody's just fired up no pun intended and then mookie just as everybody's yelling and trying to figure out what happened and trying to make sense of it and trying to grieve on the spot mookie just walks over and empties a trash can I would I would suggest that they like are making sense out of it and they're ready to just murder Sal and his sons, or at least like like seriously scuff them up. So there's an argument for that. There's definitely an argument for that. And and what happens if you haven't seen the film is Mookie takes the trash can amidst all this and just throws it through the window of Sal's pizzeria. Sal's famous just fires it right through, and everybody starts looting and destroying not looting yeah looting they're robbing the place and destroying and setting fire to um sal's famous and people have discussed over time whether or not he was trying to save sal by doing that i I don't it's not the camp i'm in it's great if you can have that conversation because this movie provokes a lot of different conversations but it was just something had to be done and he was the tie from that community to this community. And something that was always interesting to me is the the conversation Pino and Sal have about there's too many pizzerias already in Bensonhurst. That's his reason. That's his reason for not, why don't we open a, a shop in our neighborhood, Papa, without people? It's too many pizzerias. It's not because they need us. And because I love being here and there's something about this culture, it gives me pride. There are too many pizzerias in our neighborhood already. And that really goes back to class. Mm. Danny Aiello is still not here because he wants to be. 
he's here because it was what was affordable and what he could get into at the time. And he managed to build something over time that just sustained well enough to build a living on. But it really made me think this guy isn't as enamored with this neighborhood as he might like to think he is. And it goes back to class with all of it. And you just see this man broken while he watches his restaurant burn. Yeah. The, probably the most heartbreaking moment for me was mother's sister out on the curb screaming, burn, burn it, burn. And it, like I kind of thought she was the representation of Martin. Martin, like voice of reason. Yeah. And to see her in a rage, a woman who's seen all this in life and has this vantage point that's removed from some of the other folks in this out the, the wet brain, maybe that the mayor has, and she's just in the thick of it screaming. And that really made it hit me in the chest. It made me uncomfortable in a way that I think it's, it's supposed to. And then the fire brigade shows up to put the fire out and they start hosing people. But they first go over to the Korean grocer. Oh, yes. Yes. Talk about it. <laughs> so once they're done dismantling and, and setting fire to Sal's, they, uh, Paul Benjamin, I believe, is the one that leads the, yeah, uh, leads them over to the Korean grocer who is pleading like, you know, we're the same. Like we're both like in our, like out of our elements in places where we are in a system that is oppressing us and. Uh, Paul Benjamin's like, no, we're not the same. We're black. Like you're not, you're not black. And it's just interesting how you can both understand that and not understand it, agree with it and not agree with it and see where they're both coming from. But ultimately Frank, if I think is the one that talks him out of it. And that's a really important moment because it, like, why not at this point is a, a viewer, it's just like, oh, this is just going to keep going. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't. And it's really important that it stops somewhere. There is a line, like somebody has a voice of reason. So they pull back from that fire brigade shows up and they start hosing people down and mother sisters screaming and shrieking like, no, it's this guttural, like, oh my God, it's just so affecting to see her break down and it's hard to watch, man. Yeah. But she has this reaction that is, I think 25 years earlier in Birmingham, Alabama, there were lots and lots and lots of black people killed from fire hoses. Yeah. And you know, she's of that era where she heard about it. If she didn't see it, you see her having this, this kind of flashback trauma memory. And it's, it's really hard. It's really hard to watch. It, it, all hell is completely broken loose and it doesn't end there. You know, we get to go to the next morning and we get to see the wreckage of all this. And we get to see another beautiful, sunny, hot day. And Mookie goes back to Sal's to get paid. What'd yeah. you take? Would you take away from that scene? The one thing that I noticed this time that I hadn't before was bugging out Air Jordan laying amongst the debris outside of mm. the pizza place because I that, I didn't clock that before. It's a tough scene. They play it really, really well. It's a like it's a hard scene to pull off in any movie. And it was funny because I was reading about how Paramount went to Spike Lee and they were like, we want this to be uplifting. Like we want them to reunite and hug at the end. And he's just like, I think that happened on like a Friday. And by Monday, they're at a different studio. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, that's not happening. But yeah, it's a tough scene. And it's funny because even after everything, Mookie gets his money and tries to give Sal back the money that he's not owed. So he's trying to be fair. But the thing that really sits in my gut is when Mookie turns to me and he goes, I'm going to go see my girlfriend, if that's okay with you. 
And he almost like asks him permission. And there's a lot going on in that line. Well, that's when the camera starts to pull out and we just see the wreckage of the neighborhood. But we also see everything's business as usual. You have Mr. Senor Love Daddy starting where we begin, basically, and just calling out the day it's going to be even hotter. Yeah. God, what does that mean? Is right? this a sequel? Is there going to be a sequel? <laughs> Post-credit scene. No, it's interesting because you brought the whole thing with Ruby D in Birmingham. And it's it's funny because I don't think I've, I've watched this movie in like probably 10 or 15 years. And I'm glad that I revisited it, especially after the Black Lives Matter movement. And it is just so much more heartbreaking now to realize that it's been 30 years and that or you know, 40 years almost. And like there's been no real traction or change. People are still facing the exact same problems. Like police brutality is still a problem. Like I'm not, it is what it is. Like I'm not saying defund the police or anything like that, but like, it's still a problem that has not been dealt with. And especially towards the black community. I remember the Eric Garner murder and the Ahmaud Arbery murder specifically. I mean, they all made me very angry, but I've sold loose cigarettes. I've walked into construction sites and houses that were under construction. Maybe to check it out. Maybe to see if I want to come back and drink here. Maybe to break and enter. You know, maybe to just kind of like, oh, it's a framework of a house. Whatever the motivation was behind that. To have that identification and to know that it wouldn't have happened to me because of my skin color. Yeah. It's fucked up. Yeah, it's really There's fucked really up. no other way to put that, right? Yeah. I think the thing that really drove it home for me was, um, you know, you have this epidemic of unarmed black men being killed uh, across the United States by police. Um, and then there's instances like the thing that really sticks out to me is Aurora. Um, when the guy went into the, the white guy went into the he was armed to the teeth, had like machine guns and everything on him, went into a movie theater, shot up people watching the Batman movie mm. and the cops cuffed him. And that's just like, that's a, like, that's mm. like, if you're weighing those circumstances and you're like, all right, there's a bunch of unarmed black men just being shot or killed for no reason. And then you're cuffing people who are armed to the teeth and have murdered people in a like a bloody massacre. Like there's a problem there that we really need to look at and deal with. And I would say to the people who want to be uh, contrarians to that and say, well, you have no idea what the numbers are of the white people that do get murdered and shot and all that and the black people who do get cuffed. My argument to you would be take it up with the media because what we know is what we see and what we're being shown is this and it's a problem. So it's a problem. Whether it, because there, I'm trying to just nip contrarianism in the bud when it comes yeah. to this stuff, because there's always going to be somebody that has another side. And yeah. there, there's a way to kind of, yeah, but look at it like this. Yeah. And to those same people, I encourage you to go find, I think this footage is about a month old. There's a guy who, uh, a white man who um, was being tased by the police, like kept getting up and running after the police and scaring the police like to death because they didn't know what, like, what to do with him. They were obviously scared for their lives. And at some point, the guy just like pulls the taser off of him, gets into his truck and drives away and the police do nothing. And you're just like, I feel like if you're afraid for your life, that should have been the the moment that you were afraid for your life, but you didn't do anything about it. The strange world we're in, man. Yeah, very I, strange. I think, I think based on everything we're talking about now, 
it's just important to end where the movie ends. And I'm going to read a quote from Martin Luther King that starts the pre-credit sequence at the very end of the film. Violence as a way of achieving racial justice is both impractical and immoral. It is impractical because it is a descending spiral ending in destruction for all. The old law of eye for an eye leaves everybody blind. It is immoral because it seeks to humiliate the opponent rather than win his understanding. It seeks to annihilate rather than convert. Violence is immoral because it thrives on hatred rather than love. It destroys community and makes brotherhood impossible. It leaves society in monologue rather than dialogue. Violence ends by defeating itself. It creates bitterness in the survivors and brutality in the destroyers. And that's from Martin Luther King. And it's followed up by this quote by Malcolm X, which is, I think there are plenty of good people in America. There are also plenty of bad people in America. And the bad ones are the ones who seem to have all the power and be in these positions to block things that you and I need. Because this is the situation, you and I have to preserve the right to do what is necessary to bring an end to that situation. And it doesn't mean that I advocate violence, but at the same time, I'm not against using violence in self-defense. I don't even call it violence when it's self-defense. I call it intelligence. And the movie doesn't give anything else but the credits. And so I think neither should we. It's a good place to end and just let people think on it. I hope you've taken away listeners something from this. And I really hope you've watched. And if you haven't, that you get a chance to, because it's a really special film. For sure. So thank you again for coming on to another episode of The Real Addicts. Jonathan, you're the man. You are as well. Thank you all for listening. Much love. All right, so we have some categories that we're just going to get into for every episode, for every film. These are a work in progress. We're going to morph and dance between them. Uh, but for right now, what we've got to kick things off is something called the shock meter. This is in honor of our dear friend and soon-to-be guest, Danny Shock. He is one of the greatest people, amazing stuntman, phenomenal actor. You've seen him all over the place. And he had this game where he'd say, pick a movie then decide if it's bad, good, or great, and whether you hated it, liked it, or loved it. And he gave examples we won't use. We're going to throw his tastes under the bus, but there could be a great movie that you hate. Jonathan, I think you have one. Yeah, I think Oppenheimer is a perfect example of a great movie that I hate. <laughs> yeah. And then there's great movies you love. There's bad movies that, that I love. Yeah, I have a lot Tons. of those. More of those yeah. than anything else. So this is going to be what it is. The shock meter. The shock meter was, and I think this is a pretty easy one just to kick things off. It's a great film that I loved. And I would also agree that it is a great film that I loved. So and easy. I love it. I love it more and more every time I watch it, actually. And that's a weird thing to say, but like, it's just, there's more and more that I appreciate about it. I agree with that from an artistic standpoint, from a cultural standpoint. I hate it more and more because yeah, it's just absolutely. a reminder of how far we haven't come, right? Right. Which we've definitely covered. So we had one called Fine Wine or Wrong Time, which an alternate title, Fine Wine or Cheese in the Sun. Basically, did this film age well or not? 
And again, this is a real easy kickoff for this because yeah, right? Yeah. Aged too well. Too well. <laughs> it has aged too well. And like it's... also poorly, but also like too well. Culturally, it's it's like hard to look back at, but it's a great movie that holds up over time. And we got all-time quote. A lot of films just have these lines. This is so well-written. We've gone over this, I think, a great deal in this episode. But what's an all-time line for this? I had two other ones we haven't talked about. Did you have any that really stuck out to you? No, we covered the ones that I had. There's one line, for some reason, I love, and Spike nailed it. And it's when he's walking by Demare, and Demare stops him, and he's like, what, what? And he's like, "Do the always do the right thing. And, he's, and Spike says... That it? Got it. I'm gone. <laughs> Just like the way that his cadence on that line is so good. It is. And that was one of my two. It yeah. Was, it's just, it's a really great use of the title. And the other one I had, which is just amazing comedy, but it's also ridiculous foreshadowing is at the beginning with Pino and Vito just fighting before they even get inside the restaurant. And the button on the scene is Sal just going, I'm going to kill somebody today. It's interesting because it's foreshadowing. He doesn't. Yeah. Like, through all the hate, through all the hatred, it's the police that come and yeah. kill somebody today. Yeah. And even the other scene he talks about, he's like, if somebody's going to slap somebody, it's going to be me. That always do the right thing line sets us up well for kind of title fight, which is just, uh, did the title work or didn't it? I think it absolutely works because I was reading that the original title was Heat Wave, and I'm very glad that he changed it to do the right thing. Yeah, it's so layered. Yeah. I really resonate with that because it's what is the right thing is the question that follows up. It's like, always do the right thing. Got it. Gone. Like He walks away, but it's like, all right, cool. What is the right thing? Yeah. And there's so much in here that asks the question, is it this? Is it this? Definitely not this. And it's the right one. Heat wave sucks. That's yeah. terrible. I think Spike Lee is the only one who can get away with do the right thing without it sounding like an after school special. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But exactly. You had something that was a game changer. And if it wasn't a game changer and it didn't change the course of film history from that point forward, eh, yeah, maybe it is a little heavy handed or like you said, a little after school. -y. Favorite supporting character. There's so many in this. Do you have one that's just not... Because we have a dark horse performance category that's coming up after this. So it doesn't have to be the same person, but it can be. We haven't talked about Vino at all. And I feel like Vino is actually a very lovable character that like is always just trying to keep the peace and gets along with everybody. And it's funny, we had the conversation earlier about, is there a character you like? And that's definitely a character that I like because he's just so <laughs> friendly. Like, I don't even know how to put it. And he's benign. Like, he won't even hurt his brother. No, and his brother certainly hurts him. It would be justifiable. And we're back to that Malcolm X quote about its intelligence when it's self-defense. And that's not him. It's just not what he does. He's not going to stick up for himself with violence. So I think that that's probably the only supporting character that I would... I mean, they're all just... I, they're all so interesting. I don't want to pick one, but that was one I wanted to call out that we hadn't yet. And that's Richard Edson, who's... Really Ferris well known for Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Relax, we're professionals. When they're valeting the what cops. What country do you think this is? <laughs> yeah. I, I think my favorite supporting character, this is a tough one, man. Really just going around and around with it. I think it's probably bugging out. Interesting. Okay. I, it's because I had such a visceral reaction to him 
but it's also because it's 2024. In 1989, it might be my favorite supporting character because he is just such an impetus for mm. the entire thing. But I can't get the fact out of my head that that's Giancarlo Esposito. Right. I can't. I just, to think of him and all the work that he's done, playing Gus in Breaking Bad and looking back at Do the Right Thing and seeing that, that's range most don't know. The only thing those two performances have in common are a pair of glasses. Yeah. So that's my uh, favorite supporting character. And what's your Dark Horse performance? Dark Horse performance. I have to go. It's interesting because I'd have to go with Rosa Perez just because I think that she's so authentically New York that it's just like hard. To, like she just really just is the final like touch that you can't even question because she is just so authentically New York and brings everything to it. Yeah, that's fair, man. And it's introducing Rosie Perez. This is her first film, her first performance. So good call. That's a good one. I went with ML with Paul Benjamin's character because he just offers such a, a quiet intensity that I think goes overlooked. He really overpowers the other two to the extent that they need to tag team him. Sweet Dick Willie and Frankie Faison need to kind of come at him as one. But his moments, especially that moment where he slowly walks over to the Koreans and you can tell he's set to lead the brigade to burn them down. Yeah. And the way they ha- they converse back and forth about the Koreans not being black and the blacks being black and the difference. It's just really understated, really good stuff. Now, we got Donna and Diane. These are our mothers. And Donna and Diane category is, would Donna and Diane enjoy this movie? Would Donna enjoy this? Donna would enjoy this. I I, I mean, as far as, like, she would appreciate it. I don't know if she would enjoy it. She wouldn't be sitting Mm. back chuckling. But, like, it's definitely a movie that she would, uh, that would move her and that she would uh, be absorbed in and and talk about after. I don't think Diane could watch this. My mom is is very sensitive. It's where I get a lot of my sensitivity from. And as an empathetic human to the extent that she is, I just think it's it's a lot. This was definitely not for my mother, but like you said, if she were to watch it, she would vastly appreciate it to the point of tears. The next one is the best person to watch this with. If you had to pick, you get to pick one person who's the best person. It could be someone you know. It could be the idea or category of a human. It, whatever you think the best person to watch this would be. That's a great question. For some reason, like I would, like I just want to say by myself because I just feel like it requires a lot of self reflection. I know it does require conversation, but I think it's just a, it's a tough film to be like, oh, I would watch it with this person or that person. I think that there are many people I would, but not any one person in particular. I said my therapist for this. Ooh, like, I would love to one. watch this with my therapist. He's such an insightful, kind-hearted person. And he's a black man who's a pastor, a retired pastor in his, I don't know, I can't guess his age, late 60s, maybe early 70s, uh, but he looks great. And I would just be very curious to pick his brain and to sit and watch this with him because he, he grew up during a time where all this was very prevalent. And I'm sure he's endured some difficult treatment. He grew up, I th- I think he's in Maryland now, but I'm not sure where he grew up in the South, but just someone's perspective like that, who I respect and trust and would really like to pick their brains about after the film. He's the guy I chose for this. 
All right, let's get into a brief conversation about the Oscars from 1990 <laughs> for the films of 1989. And let's keep it brief, not just for time, but because I don't want to throw my laptop. <laughs> All right, now, so go ahead. No, please just take the mantle on this. I mean, so I just wanted to start by saying that I first looked up the the 1989 Oscars, which I looked up Best Director, and that infuriated me because it was um, Barry Levinson for Rain Man, which I was just like, is that who Spike lost to? <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I'm looking at the wrong year. So then I went to 1990, and I realized that it was Oliver Stone for Born on the Fourth of July, which... Listen, no offense to Oliver Stone. And and like the others, like these are all great nominees. Jim Sheridan for My Left Foot, Kenneth Branagh for Henry V, uh, Woody Allen for Crimes and Misdemeanors, and then Peter Weir for Dead Poets Society. But none, like, I mean, just, just for its, how much it has impacted the film, like cinema and culture in general. Like, I just don't understand how you don't give Spike Lee a nomination at the very least. And I would have him beat all of these people just because we're talking about this movie so many years later and none of these films are ones we're talking about. This shit is racist. <laughs> I'm just going to say it, dude. Like fucking, are you serious? My Left Foot, Dead Poet Society and Henry V can go hacking. And it's yeah. not because they're bad films. It's not because they're not unbelievable historic directors and pillars of the community it's because they can't hold a candle to what spike lee did would do the right thing in 1989 and that's all that's really it oliver stone is epic and born on the fourth of july is a masterwork for him people go nuts for it um crimes and misdemeanors is my favorite woody allen film i i get it i understand these things and again no disrespect to the other three but my god that's that's wild. It's just insane to me that this didn't get a best director nod or a best picture nomination. Right. Which is Which, like shocking. And now we're up to and driving Miss Daisy one, a film where Morgan Freeman is driving Jessica Tandy around in a car. It's just like, this is a bad look. We did not launch into the 90s with uh, a lot of uh, representation in mind, that's for sure. And again, I don't say that because I hate pandering in the form of representation for the sake of representation. I'm talking about earned. Yeah. Earned. Just this is a beautiful, amazing piece of work that changed the scope of filmmaking. Let's, I don't know, give it some kudos and a pat on the ass with a nomination at least. Yeah. Um, did you look at the best original screenplay category? I did, yeah. All right, so just to break this down, the nominees were uh, Tom Schulman for Dead Poets Society, Spike Lee for Do the Right Thing, so at least that happened, Woody, Woody Allen for Crimes and Misdemeanors, Steven Soderbergh for Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and Nora Ephron for When Harry Met Sally. I want to start by saying I love all of these movies. <laughs> like There isn't one here that this I dislike. Great, this is a really great category. Yeah, it's a solid category. I, I, I mean, it... Steven Soderbergh definitely deserved a, a nomination for Sex, Lies, and Videotapes just because it was uh, a groundbreaking thing. Do, just The fact that Dead Poets Society won is shocking to me. And it's a film that I love. It's a film that has always had a nostalgic place in my heart and uh, meant a lot to me as a teenager. But it's just looking back, it's just, you, cannot, you can't, there's no way you can justify it over do the right thing. It's just from a technical standpoint, like they're both ensemble films to a degree, but like Dead Poets Society handles its ensemble not that well. Whereas just from a screenplay perspective, do the right thing nailed it. Like it just captured all of those characters beautifully. 
that's the ultimate point and you just made it it's already there i would i would honestly give it to any of those other four personally just personal preference you can't really make a mistake with this it is five powerhouses yeah but every every single one of those other four are icons these are these are films that really changed whether woody allen's crimes and misdemeanors really just put a whole new spin on his work and made it darker and more introverted than it had ever been and it's it's a banger that's a great great script and a phenomenal film when Harry Met Sally in 2024 is still heralded as potentially the greatest rom-com of all time. And Sex, Lies, and Videotape was arguably the beginning of post-Cassavetti's independent cinema. These yeah. are really, really important films. And Dead Poet Society was the Hollywood favorite, which is why it won, but it's also why it shouldn't have, because it, that's all it was looking back through that lens all of these years later. Yeah, it's interesting, like doing this exercise, I feel like this is how the Oscars should. Be. And I think somebody said this at some point, I forget who it was, but I think we should be judging like 10 years ago, like today, like the, today's Oscars should be for the Oscars of like 2014. <laughs> I've heard that. I've heard that from some people, people like Bill Simmons and Sean Fennessy have tackled it. What a great idea. The yeah, because like there's so many that I question. And it would force people to rewatch stuff like yeah. it's a great business model for the industry because it's kind of like it, it can be three or, or even a year now you're making people rewatch stuff from last year you could have the theaters which are hurting re-releasing movies that have already screened to get people ready for the oscars it's an it's a really good idea yeah and we all know that moonlight would have beat la la land <laughs> oh my god <laughs> what did that envelope actually have in it that's what i want to know that moonlight's one of my favorites. It's great. I still have to tell people it won Best Picture because I mean it did, <laughs> didn't it? Uh, <laughs> Best Supporting Actor was Danny Aiello. Nomination yeah. didn't win. I, I think honestly, I would probably one Oscar nod for a performance. Who does it go to? That's that's the right move. What do you think? Yeah, has he ever won an Oscar? I don't think so. That's just sure. that's just a travesty. Yeah, it's not good. It's not good. And he's passed. So sadly, he won't. If we change the rules, I, I feel like he could posthumously. That's the only nomination he's Yeah, I just saw that. Or a globe either. Which is shocking. You know, it's great about Danny Aiello that they had on the, the Gilbert Gottfried podcast that, that I encourage you again to listen to <laughs> is he is absolutely disgusted and ashamed by his performance in Moonstruck. Really? hates it really it's the film it's so funny because it's so raw vulnerable charming pathetic but nuanced and necessary wow and, that is yeah. so funny i have to listen to that so those are the big three right picture performance well big four picture director performance and writing you could absolutely argue that in, in a year where my Left Foot, Enemies, A Love Story, which I never saw. Diana Weist and Parenthood and Steel, Steel Magnolias. I never saw Enemies, A Love Story. That got a double nod. It got a bunch support. of, uh, yeah, I was looking at that. It got a bunch of awards. It got a, a screenplay nomination. I was like, oh, I have to check this out. I will too. Yeah, I'll give that a look. But I think there's absolutely a world in which Ruby D can go in for supporting actress. We made it through the Oscars unscathed. Moving Unscathed. On. The Real Addicts 